Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Beedratty. It is the middle of summer. I mean, it's hot almost everywhere. I was in Philly a couple weeks ago. It was like 98 and humid every day. It was just like being in, you know, a furnace. Anyways, what got me through it was by Beedratty Sports. Uh, it is a new product. It launched about a year ago. And, uh, you know, you can go buy this on their website, bdratty.com. And it is a, it's an awesome shirt. It's the best tech fabric shirt that I've, I've worn where, you know, they really worked hard to try and get some of that same feel that you have in the, the Pima cotton shirts, the Peruvian Pima cotton shirts. You know, it took them a while to launch this shirt because they were trying to find the right blend of fabrics that gave it a different feel than your, your standard tech shirt. So if you use the code TFE25, you'll get 25% off your purchase at bdratty.com, and I highly recommend the sport line. So go to bdratty.com. Today's episode is with Jaime Diaz, the legendary golf writer and now TV personality. Jaime, uh, I mean, I can't, I've been reading Jaime Diaz for my entire life, and it was just really awesome to have him on. Uh, one of the greatest golf writers in in the history of the game and obviously years at sports illustrated new york times golf digest later uh now he's at the golf channel he will be on live from all week uh jaime was great we did our typical five things uh episode leading into this open championship so we talk about royal st george's the the opens he's covered there the opens throughout time he's covered shared some stories memories that he's had uh over the years. Uh, it was really, really fun talking to Jaime. If you've missed any of our content, be sure to go to the friedegg.com. We've had a lot of articles. We have daily newsletters to so sign up there, but uh, we had a, put together a Q&A with Tom Doak on Royal St. George's. We had uh, Garrett posted a podcast and a article, accompanied article about the history of Royal St. George's. So check that out. Uh, at thefriedegg.com. And now, without further ado, here is Jaime Diaz. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. They, they just like they turn the camera on and they go like say it's just it's like literally go yeah the producer will go okay rich go yeah. and that's it not, not even tell him what the topic is necessarily okay kepka go rich that's it and he'll and he'll nail it and and then if he screws up or in his mind screws up he'll go ah let me do it again and then you know he'll do something completely different yeah it's amazing <laughs> um that leads perfectly into you know what What's the difference between how you cover a week on TV, TV wise versus the days of SI, New York Times, um, you know, when the golden age, really, I think of, of golf riding. Yeah, I was very fortunate, but um, I was always a grinder and a toiler. Uh, so, you know, I liked just hanging around and immersing in whatever um, player I was watching and waiting around for an hour to ask one question or 
hoping I could, you know, maybe catch a guy after he finished. And this is what I'm talking about, the writing experience. And then, you know, maybe have an idea and have a, just have a conversation. And, um, you know, not only is television different, but golf writing and, and journalism in general has, has become different in that regard too. I mean, there, there, there's not as much, the players don't have as much free time. They don't have as much inclination to talk to writers. And so these kind of uh, philosophical and deep discussions that you would sometimes be able to have with a player just because maybe they were looking for somebody to talk to after a, a long practice round, they might be interested. I love talking to the people and writing and even going over my notes and stuff, but then having to put it into a cogent form was always hard. And um, so writing, I think there's more, there's more uh, chip away at the marvel <laughs> until it starts looking like something kind of process where TV is, is more instantaneous. Uh, and I, that's why I admire the people I work with so much, how, how adroit they are just uh, coming up with, with something, yeah, a, a nice idea, but delivering it so smoothly, seamlessly, so that, so that even if there's not a lot of substance, because maybe there wasn't enough time to, to really report something in depth, it still sounds really good, and it still makes the point. And so I think television is more of a, you know, you, you move on, there's always another chance, you're going to be on for a long time, it's not necessarily the definitive piece, and then you'll get it, you'll get another opportunity to polish perhaps the same subject or at least use an idea you didn't use because you couldn't think of it in the moment. Uh, but I think the main thing is, do you have television chops? That's what, you know, are you able to, to say things in a way that is pleasing to the ear, makes the point and uh, is concise. And, and that, that is, you know, the thing about writing is you have drafts. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you might, you might aim for that final uh, goal, uh, but you're going to have a lot of chances as you self-edit. With television, it's, it's generally one shot. You can't, you rarely can say to the producer, unless it's just a complete whiff, hey, can I do that again? It just, there's too many demands, there's too many people involved, and you have to live with that imperfection uh, even more than you do in writing. It's The thing you said about time with players is an interesting one, because I think they, you know, they still have a lot of time, but you know, it's, it's probably this whole thing that plagues all society that technology has made everybody feel like they have less time because they're always connected. And then I imagine with the money, you know, there fa- a lot more families that are traveling with players more so than ever before, which, you know, obviously cuts into time. But and then also like the Netflix, like I got to go back and binge the show that I'm really into is is another thing. But but that's, a you know, I never thought about just the, the sheer time because, you know, without a cell phone. Once you're once you're somewhere, I, I lived I broke my phone on a trip uh, recently and I, I just realized like how wonderful it was to like just yeah. go just to wander about with nothing to do. But like I imagine that's you know, players wouldn't they didn't have anything going on. It's like I play in a tournament, I don't have anything going on and they could just sit and talk. Yeah, there was more gathering in the caddy uh yard, because uh, players would hang out in there. Some a lot of players used to eat in the caddy yard just to have the, the conversations and uh and the caddy culture has always been the most verbal anyway, because those guys do have a lot of time to hang around waiting for players, uh, at least in the old days. Yeah. Now everything is more streamlined. Now the, the priority for a player now is, you know, the priorities, uh, the media has gone down in, in priority and not because the media is not important to them. It's just that I think before there were, uh, there were, you know, kind of uh, business reasons to be 
uh, engage with media because your sponsors and your endorsers would want you to be in the public eye. And, and, and so, you know, talking to media was, there was self-interest in that and motivation. Uh, now I think they still want good relationship with the media, but there's a lot of other ways for players to, to make money and, and, and certainly, to, you know, to uh, create their own brand. And then there's also with, with the internet and, uh, and social media, there's distrust of media because a lot of things get out there that they can't control that uh, perhaps um, cause them problems that they don't need. It's like, uh, you know, if I, and, and, and then with other demands on them, um, like family, like, like what the phone does, it, the practice time becomes more regimented too. So it's like they go to the golf course and they're efficient. They're more efficient about everything where they move. They go to the physio, you know, they go to the range, you know, maybe they do an interview, but it's, it's all very compartmentalized. There's just, and I'm not saying they were all, all wandering aimlessly. I mean, the number one players always were very kind of regimented. I mean, Jack Nicholas was very organized and, and Tiger became very organized, but it's always, it was the, the fun guys were sort of the journeyman pros that you, mm-hmm. you'd sort of see. And, you know, and you might even say, Hey, how's it going? You know, and half an hour later, you've, you've, you've had a nice conversation, but you've also learned a lot about golf. And I thought that was really instructive for me and, and very rich experience uh, as a golf writer just conversations with players it reminds me uh, you know as i was at kiowa for the first major first time i've been out covering an event in a while and you know it's the pgl stuff swirling around at that point of the year and i go yeah, up, yeah. i go up to you know a guy that i've gotten to know and uh he's he's not a a-list player not really probably a b-list player and i asked him like about the pgl stuff and he gave me just the most candid answer because i i can't wait I can't wait for there to be an A yeah. tour and a B tour. I can't wait to play on the B tour. You know, it's like something you'd never expect a pro golfer to no, say. No, but with it. that perspective, from his perspective, it makes sense. But yeah. that's the kind of thing. Yeah, you you'd never see someone like that get pulled into the in the media room, and that's that's where a lot of the uh, interviews take place now. Because uh, again, sort of program that the players. This is my media time, and I, I'll I'll do the car wash, as they say. I'll talk to all the guys. You know, with the outlets with microphones and, and I'll do the, uh, the separate interviews and then I'll do the mass interview in the media room. And, you know, once they're done with that, they don't generally stop and, and talk to writers very much. Uh, before it would be a little bit like a free for all. And you can, you can even read it in some of the old stories. Uh, you can sort of set the, set the scene in your head as Jan Jenkins, you know, shares a cigarette with, uh, you know, with uh, whoever, uh, Don January or somebody and, and starts talking about, uh, things that you know give him material that he then would use maybe he wouldn't quote don january but it was because he had those those times and moments and leisure to kind of uh, develop an idea and have a nice relaxed conversation that he got a lot of the great stuff that he got do you have a, a favorite it's open championship week do you have a favorite open uh from you know either back in the day or more more uh recent memory that was your favorite one to cover or maybe your favorite sunday game story that you you cranked out or uh, got got done under the wire that like you didn't know where it was going when you started it i never yeah well that was always the issue yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah just narrowing down the i you know scattershot ideas and and finally and that you know was kind of a curse actually sports illustrated in a way to it doesn't it didn't seem like any a lot of time at all before uh now you would write overnight and so you god i got all night i'll just pull an all-nighter and i'll think of something good and 
uh, that could end up being, you know, a horrible uh, <laughs> uh, cycle of, of indecision and panic. But uh, no, in general, you, you know, when when the bell rings, something happens to you. Um, I mean, you can choke, but it can also your your uh, your senses get more attuned. You're, you you start thinking clearly under the gun a little more, and sometimes you wait for the deadline on purpose in a way, and that's that's a terrible procrastination habit. But sometimes it cre- I just read a story about this. Uh, I don't know where it was, Atlantic or something, about how um, procrastinators have a have a method to their madness because there's a certain level of stress that produces your best thinking and your best performance. But um, as far as favorite, gosh, um, I you know it's it's also individual and random. In this, but I remember '89 at Troon just being magical, and it was kind of tragic because because Greg Norman should have won that tournament probably. Um, and it was a three-way playoff with he and Wayne Grady and Calc. And I've always liked Calc. He's, he's a great talker and very funny. Um, and he was a young gun at that time. He, you know, he, he had won already three years before, but he was in his prime. He probably could have won the Masters uh, in 88 when, when Lyle hit that great shot out of the bunker to birdie the last hole to, to beat him by one. So he was formidable, but um, it was also the – if I'm not mistaken, the first four hole playoff, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, late at night. And it was just so, you know, uh, in the gloaming there in, in, in on a links, it, it was just very, uh, and I'd watched a lot of the golf that day during the Sunday and seen Greg. And, and of course, by this time, Norman's been nipped at the end sometimes by his own, you know, um, his own mistakes, but sometimes by miracles like, uh, like Larry Mize's chip and stuff. Uh, so he was kind of snake bit there too. He, he knocked in the bunker on 18 on, uh, on, uh, on, a on the last hole, uh, his last playoff hole, a bunker. He didn't think he could reach, uh, but it rolled in, uh, because he smoked it. But anyway, uh, yeah, I'm not giving you a great answer except to say that because it was just kind of, I, I felt like I was really connected to it. Mm-hmm. Um, as it was happening and all the players involved and, and because of the access and because of the, the playoff, it just, it created this really nice drama uh, to watch. Uh, but, you know, the, the settings are often incredible. I, 92 and when, when um, excuse me, 1990, when, when Faldo won, that was a tour de force at St. Andrews. And Faldo was not an overpowering player, but he was, as you know, just so incredibly precise. Mm-hmm. And he, he, as he had won at the masters without, great length he he also sort of really charted and and played chess at st andrews uh at the old course and i think it was 19 under or 18 under and he set a record and it was just flawless golf and being at st andrews is magical in its own in its own right so to see a great tournament there and a great performance was really special with with calc he was like at that point dubbed like the next big thing right and then it, it kind of set up but became, you know, labeled as a disappointment. Well, yeah, I, I, it might be overstating the next big thing, but there, he certainly went up in in uh, stature tremendously because he hit two really clutch shots. Uh, he birdied 18 with a five iron. I remember that shot because I was walking right next to him. And then uh, and then in the playoff, he striped it on there, too. Uh, so there was a sense that this guy's a great closer. But if you talk to Calc, he'll say, I'm the worst closer who ever lived. And I believe he has 29 second places. <laughs> I mean, I think he has the biggest ratio of second places to first places of anybody who's ever won 10 tournaments in history. 
Uh, that's a hard thing to, to chart completely because the records aren't perfect in that regard. But that's uh, it's like the next tiger these days, right? You know, when when reality, like I think the reality is, we should be saying like, "Hey, maybe next Phil or Ernie," and that would be a really lofty claim, right? You know, I I guess when once someone set the standard, you know, that becomes what everybody's is going to measure by and aspire to. And the funny thing is when, you know, I remember a lot of stories in the nineties about how, Oh, there's so much parody. There'll never be another dominant player. And it made perfect sense. I mean, there was one run, I think in the eighties where 19 different guys won a major. Um, so there was very little kind of, you know, uh, especially in the majors domination. Uh, I mean, we'd had Nicholas of course, and his, his era kind of ended in, in the eighties, but Watson was, was really a prominent early eighties. Uh, and then it started to look like, gosh, uh, maybe those, that 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 time where there's a, a an incredibly uh, you know dominant number one is over. It's just there's too much depth. Um, there's too many young players that are coming up. Powers become more important. The same arguments you hear now. But then Tiger shows up in in the mid '90s, and nobody's ever been more dominant. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not saying I learned my lesson on that, but I mean, I history tends to repeat itself too, right? It could, it could repeat. I mean, you know, there could be another tiger in our midst. that was six years old right now. Um, you know, with it being Royal St. George's, you covered Royal St. George's, uh, opens in the past. Uh, any, any favorite memories or ones that stand out from, from opens at Royal St. George's on the ground? Well, um, uh, 2004 was very tough loss for, Thomas Bjorn, but it was also a tough, a tough loss. As you know, he left it in the bunker twice on 16 uh, with a, with a two stroke lead and then bogeyed 17 and, and lost and, and bed Curtis had played ahead and, and made a, he made a 10 footer for a par on 18 that turned out to be the winning putt, but VJ was right there and tiger was right there. And even Phil was, was lurking. And Phil at that time was not contending in many open championships. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, um, a good one. Um, it seemed like with Phil, with Phil, 2011 seemed like a real turning point in his open career. Yeah, he talked about it even then. He's going, I think I made a breakthrough. Uh, but 92, I think, was probably my favorite at, at St. George's just because it was it was a real virtuoso performance by, by Greg. And it was, you know, you love to see him capitalize. I did anyway, capitalize on, on some really great golf that he had not capitalized in the past. Uh, and he had he'd gone through a a big rebuild of his golf swing with, with Butch Harmon for about a year and a half. And uh, that was the validation that it was, that it worked. And, you know, we, we used to hear about rebuilds all the time with Faldo and, uh, and even, you know, Hank Haney with Tiger and Tiger. And then, you know, when Tiger start, when Tiger did it, it was like, he was following that model uh, you know, that, Hey, it worked for Butch with, with Fal with uh, Norman and, and led better with Faldo and Haney with O'Meara. This is what guys do when they get better. So I want to, I want to do it too. Uh, and he's always been, you know, he always loved the idea of constant improvement, but I think it's debatable whether um, Tiger really had the kind of success with his rebuild that uh, the others had had. And there's many who argue that his best golf swing was the one he brought out on tour. Um, or at least the one, maybe he refined one time with Butch by 2000 and who knows what happens to a golfer. The body changes, the feels change, uh, habits get ingrained. And suddenly the swings doesn't look quite as effortless. So maybe Tiger fought that off with his swing changes. But I don't think anybody considers um, 
the swings that he had later in his career to be better than the ones he had early in his career. Mm-hmm. That you know the the rap on on Royal St. George's is these not big winners, and then you look down the list and you see Greg Norman and Sandy Lyle, and it's like you know those you know they might not have won the most majors. They might you know I think two two those two guys when you look back on history are two of the guys that maybe didn't win nearly as much as they should have or their talent dictated they they would win. You know, with Sandy Lyle, he was obviously like an overwhelmingly powerful player. You know, there were tales of his one iron going past most guys' drivers. And then Greg Norman obviously gave more majors away than he won. But, you know, you look down the list and then you got Bobby Locke and Walter Hagen and Harry Varden. It's like, you know, Ben Curtis, Darren Clark and, and Bill Rogers. Bill Rogers at the time was like, it seems like it just doesn't really. That's not a good argument against Royal St. George's. It's a good rebuttal. You make a good rebuttal, and and uh, and you're right. I mean, certainly, it's just been too long since Barden and Hagen each won twice at yeah. St. George's. So that's validation, you'd think. And Henry Cotton was a special player. Then you look at, you know, Reg Whitcomb. Well, no, nobody remembers him, but that supposedly was the worst weather ever in a, in a major. Bobby Locke was perhaps the most underrated player of that first half century, if not even the whole century. Um, and I think one 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 thing that, causes that narrative to arise is bill rogers sandy lyle completely lost it mm-hmm. which in mysteriously i mean bill rogers was done by 1983 after being really number one in the world they didn't have the world ranking at that he, well time. he won player of the year that year he won player of the year and he was uh, he won seven times you know he was really a special talent and uh, and it was coming at a time of course watson was in his prime but it was like well there's going to be a change of the guard here and it looks like bill rogers is going to be part of it and didn't happen and then Lyle really had immense talent. I mean, he won the two majors. He won the Masters. Uh, I, I remember Seve being asked, you know, because there was the big six, you know, mm-hmm. you got if all of you played your best, and this would be Lyle and Faldo and Seve. Longer. And, and Woozy uh, and Longer. Who would who would be the best? He goes, oh, Sandy. You know, Sandy would be the best. Because it was just a given, as you were alluding to, his one iron there. I, I did see that in the, at the Ryder Cup in 87. And he was hitting one iron past Andy Bean's driver, you know, and Andy Bean was not short. Yeah. <laughs> so he, it was, it was really a special, um, you know, display of, of real kind of uh, an edge of, of talent that he had over others. Um, you know, Ben Curtis. Okay. He was not a great player, but that was a great victory and he did win. Otherwise um, I guess what I'm saying is at the time, these guys won and even Greg, they were not really, um, or very shortly after they were sort of out of the limelight. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have that enduring kind of name that, that made you think of them when you look back at St. George's as, Oh, that guy was great. It was, it was more, that guy had a moment in time. Now, Greg, of course, had more than a moment in time, but even Greg, after he won in 93, was like, okay, now he's going to click in. This is going to be the second period of his, of his greatness. It's going to be even better. And the next, the next major was the PGA at, at, uh, at Inverness. And, Sure enough, he lifts one out on 18. That was pretty far in the hole. It's going to playoff with Azinger. And then he lifts out again on the playoff hole. I think it was a three-hole playoff or maybe it was sudden death. Anyway, he ends up three-putting and losing. And again, it was like, oh, Greg is snake bit again. And sure enough, did not win another major. Now, he did have that great players championship where he was 24 under, but he he didn't fulfill that vision of what Greg Norman was supposed to be. So that's, you know, in, in a very very uh vague way it, it does reflect 
a little on his Saint, on his St. George's uh, victory of the way it's remembered because Greg is not remembered as the great player that he probably should be remembered as. Let's get into the five things. You know, we each come up with five things. You're you're the guest. I'm the host. I make the rules. You're you're up first. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I just started thinking more in terms of players, but I'll start with one that just like conceptual a little bit. You know, will we see Lynx shots, real Lynx shots this week? And 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 I only say that because as much as I love the Lynx uh, courses and the championships, there seems to be two things that are happening. You don't you don't see him bone dry very often anymore. Maybe that may just be a function of weather. I mean, we did see that at Hoy Lake when Tiger won. That was, and that was cool. And that was really very linksy the way they had to play approach shots. And secondly, the style of play, uh, I think um, it's kind of been with modern equipment just as effective to just hit pure blooded regular shots uh, and just play for a little bounce on a links instead of trying to carve all these artistic Trevino Peter Thompson, you know. Uh, you know, wind shots. Uh, well, not, I haven't seen, I, I don't see it very all. You expect to see it at the, at the open and I haven't seen it at the open very often. So I just wonder, what do you think? I mean, I, I same thing with Renaissance club, like last week, you know, I, I yeah. expected to see the ball on the ground more, but you don't see it. Like I think Carnoustie a couple years ago, that was really linksy. Remember when those fairways were just browned out and that that was one yeah yeah mm-hmm. we that was a really i mean that was maybe one of my favorite opens that i've ever seen you know I mean, it goes down with the troon one with with uh stenson and phil um yeah. but the you know this week with the rain early i it really makes me wonder about like how firms are gonna get i see it's supposed to be sunny and windy but you you might be right and i think i think that low spin ball is just you know the way the wind impacts it is just not the same as right as yeah. what it used to be like i i distinctly remember just growing up and playing like you know all of a sudden like wind just wasn't as big of a, a deal uh you know as the equipment kept getting better and i think that has you know i i've heard you on on live from this week talk about like there might not be true links players anymore I think there might be some players that it skews better for. Like, I think we saw at Kiowa with, with Phil. Mm-hmm. Ha- Phil played different shots in yeah, the wind. And you could mm-hmm. see that his experience really shone, sh- shine through. But, yeah, I unless it's you get the Carnoustie lead up, I don't know if we'll see those types of shots. Yeah, Rom and Spieth have got good scoring records. And Rom's got great hands. He doesn't really play Lynx full shots, but he's pretty good around the green fashioning things. And of course, Jordan's got great imagination and skill. So I think around the short, around the greens, there's still Lynxy kind of shots we'll see. But it used to be a lot of fun to go to the open. And I remember walking in with Trevino at 92. Um, he said that was going to be his last open, and it wasn't. He, he played in 2000 as well. But, he, you know, he was kind of he was out of it, but he was putting on a little bit of a clinic. Well, he was talking to Herman. He goes, now watch this shot. I'm going to do this with that. You know, and it was just that's. I don't know. That to me has always been the most fun is to is to see somebody with just incredible skill do things that uh, you marvel at just aesthetically. And and so that's I'm not saying it's gone, but um, and for young people, they don't know anything different. It's it's okay. But if you you saw that, you kind of miss it. I think the most fun shots are the non stock shots, right? Like your right. non, like yeah. the non driving range shot that you'd see a yeah. guy hit at driving range. And I think, you know, you saw some of them, like, you know, it, it's that low eight iron runner from 50 yards instead of the lot, just the straight to the lob wedge, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I, I parlaying off yours, one of my five is uh is the searching, the group that's kind of searching for for Link's success. We haven't, you know, big name players, Bryson, JT, you know, obviously players that we expect that are going to win more than one major that, you know, for Bryson's two or three missed cuts, JT, uh, two or four missed cuts. His best finish was actually the most recent one, T11 at a, at a open to me, uh, JT seems much more like a, a player that might thrive on the links. Um, you know, with all the different shots that he's he's capable of hitting, particularly around the green, I, I think he's one of the most fun players to watch hit shots around the green. Um, but I think, uh, you know, in Colin Borkawa, we've never even seen him play on the link, a, a yeah. links course. Like that's he's top five player of the world. He hasn't played a, a played an open championship. It's it's a rarity these days. So that yeah, that'd be know, one of my five one of my things. Do you think one of those guys is going to break out? Well, you know, I, I think of uh, when I think of of a Colin Morikawa, I think of Molinari when he was playing well, uh, very similar. Yeah. Just great control, you know, moderately long. Uh, Francesco had gotten a little longer that, that helped him instead of hitting five irons, maybe he was hitting seven and eight irons occasionally. And that made a difference to his scoring. Uh, Colin is just so impressive to Tita green. It's not overpowering, but it's again, it's Faldo like kind of precise and, uh, the putter hurts him. I think the putter generally hurts less at the open championship. The greens usually aren't quite as fast. Um, they may have undulation, but it's more um, kind of um, uh, manageable. Uh, you're not always, you know, making six foot comebackers. Uh, so, you know, I, I like him. Uh, I like his attitude. I like his approach. Um, again, you, you know, when somebody's not a, like at a young age, when they're not like a really you know, genius putter and, and they're vying to be the best player in the world. I do. I kind of worry that, well, he, he's just not going to ever make enough putts. And so that to me is the question. I know he's gone to the claw and, you know, some people say it's a cautionary tale. I think, no, the claws helped a lot of players and you can be a great player with a claw. So not counting them out, but it just seems like that's almost innate. The, the great putters are almost innate. Rom happens to be a pretty darn good putter. I mean, you know, obviously we saw that at Tory the way he finished, but I think that's what separates him among the power players. And as for JT, I mean, JT is also not a great putter. He's, he's okay, uh, but statistically not good. He's in the hundreds uh, strokes gain putting. So, you know, another great ball striker. I do sometimes he goes after it so hard, which, you know, all the, all the great little guys did. Um, but being up on his toes like that, I know he launches uh, and uses, you know, all that force and the ground, the ground forces and all that. I don't know that it's, the most reliable way to, to, to really be a consistently straight driver. Um, and that's nitpicking. I mean, he, I agree with all you're saying about all the shots he's got, especially with the irons and the wedges. Uh, temperament's an issue probably on a links. If you don't have patience, uh, it's going to probably get you. So maybe it's maturity with him too. And, you know, he's gone through a tough year here. And I'm sure he's going to come out of it, a, you know, even more mature, uh, just out of adversity. So, I, I just think it's early on those guys. I, I think searching is a good word. Who's going to emerge? Um, but, you know, if you're going to win majors, the putter just has to be, it has to be special, I think. Uh, well, I mean, look at look at the guys that have come close a lot, but not won a lot. And it's like, you've got, you know, Sergio Garcia, Adam Scott. We've got decades of, of information of this. Great at, example. At, um, mm-hmm. You've got Lee Westwood. Um, to a lesser extent, Louis Ustazen, I know he's at the top of the tour 
and putting this year, but this year, w- yeah. when the chips kind of come down, I, you know, on Sunday, I, Louie doesn't always make the, make the putts that other guys make that end up winning, you know? And I think, I think that's like the thing is like, we, the putt, you know, everybody beats to death putt for show or putt for dough drive for show is dead. But at, once you get to the very top levels, yeah, you're still putting for the dough. And we saw, like, Rom, the putter won him the tournament on the last two holes. Now, I, people with data will come back and say so and so on. But, like, that's what makes those little incremental differences in majors. You said it beautifully. I couldn't agree with you more. I do think that the farther you go in the game, uh, if you want to win, the putter is the most important club. Uh, it, it will not keep you on tour alone. You know, uh, there's a lot more good ball strikers. Uh, who are keeping their card bec- who can't putt then there are great putters who can't hit it uh it's it's just the the the, the, the demand uh on ball striking is is very high on the tour um the you know you got to have club head speed most most of the journeymen don't have quite as much so they have to be more precise and if they're crooked at all they get run off the tour but you know um uh, then again to to really to win and you see these stats every week you know you know, inside of, um, in, inside 10 feet. I mean, usually there's generally about 66 putts or something, 62 putts a, a week. And there have been weeks a guy has not missed at all from inside 10 feet. It's, it's incredible how, how, how they hold out when they're winning. I mean, uh, JT Post and those kind of guys, they have these putting weeks that are incredible. And that's what, that's what gets them over the line. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your next, uh, next thing? Well, let's see. I, I have, uh, you know, has Bryson reached a limit uh, of diminishing returns with with his approach to the point that you know he's you know maybe can just live with where, where he's driving it and and start rounding out his game in other ways? Uh, I think that's what's going to. I know he wants to be the best in the world. And I know he's got a great formula and he, and it was validated at, at Wingfoot. You know, just hit it as far as you can, and so many other good things will follow. But I think when you um, have to hit those other shots after driving it well, and you're showing a real lack of, of, um, you know, tour caliber ability with wedge in particular. Uh, I just sort of feel like, okay, it's time. It's time to, to change your, your focus on what you want to improve most. Now the incremental change distance increases will not make a bigger difference than a dramatic increase right now in your wedges is how I see it. So I want to, and, and he even said this week, got to hit fairways mm-hmm. because I don't think bomb and gouge is going to work this week. It, it, it's too much rough, especially 10 or 15 yards off the fairway where he sometimes, you know, can play from with a wedge or sand wedge. So I guess my question is, you know, uh, what are we going to see from Bryson in terms of the development of his game? Mm-hmm. Also with Bryson, like when there's more, more and more external factors, I think it, it hurts his approach where, you know, like he likes to have the answers to everything, but when the wind's gusting or the course is really firm or it's quirky, which is one of the things here where you're going to see a lot of random bounces. Um, that's, that's where things start to go haywire when a ball lands in the, you know, 15 yards inside the fairway line and kicks out into the rough. That's something that is going to agitate him because that's not the way it should have happened. You know, that's, you know, in a simulation, that's not, that doesn't, that's not what's supposed to happen. And I think that's another thing with, that's a huge hurdle for him in the open is just dealing with all of the other things that can happen out there. That's well said. And I agree. I mean, at some point, 
golf is just hitting the next shot. You do what you can with the, you can't control everything and you have to live with imperfection and you move on. And I, I sort of think of Bryson right now. He's like, he's getting his PhD, you know, he's grinding in this little, you know, student apartment somewhere and, you know, <laughs> not getting enough sleep and he's just obsessing and he's lost in detail. And at some point he's going to get his degree and he's just going to go out in the workforce and clean up. And I, I just want him to get to that point where he just feels like, okay, I've studied everything. Doesn't mean you have to be mindless about it. He'll always be analytical, but go make your priority, go play golf because he was a great player. I mean, he won the U S amateur because he can play golf. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, he, he knows how to score and just don't lose that gift. I, I think he's just very obsessive about this because he feels like this is a new frontier and I'm the pioneer and I want to go as deep as I can go. But I think at some point he hope he reflects and goes, it's getting counterproductive now. Uh, I'm not against it. I think what he's done is changed the game and, and, and moved the bar forward as far as what other players are going to be doing, but he could overdo it uh, as a pioneer. Uh, I'd like to see him just start thinking, in terms of what is going to get me the lowest score and not what's going to change the game for others. I'm uh, I'm going to combine two in the, in the effort of time here. I'm going to, yeah, yeah. no, it's all right. That's good. It's, it's, this is all about discussion. So it's good. Um, I'm going to put together Royal St. George's and the wide array of players, the almost democratic nature of open championships where, you know, you really feel like almost anybody in the field can win. And I think, you know, this week we've got a golf course that players hate, which immediately kind of like perks my interest. It's it's just <laughs> something like if somebody, if the people that like right out in front of you, um, you know, what you see is what you get. Don't like it. Typically that, that, that says there's some sort of quality that makes this course different right. than every other course, <laughs> which, you know, if you look at golf architecture as an art, you want things that evoke different reactions. And this is a golf course that has evoked a lot of reactions from players over the, over time. Um, I think like the, the bounces is really what gets people, you know, the, the undulating fairways, I think, you know, from, I haven't, I haven't been to the course, but everything I've been watching, looking at the photos, it's an uh, incredible property. You know, you've yeah, got yeah. you've got such variety in terms of you've got the big dunes that you'd see at a, at a port rush. You've got the really micro movement of the great links of uh, in Scotland, like the old course where you you just get this random bounces and and I right. think um, you know one of the things that this does is that. It really opens up the field. It, 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 you know, obviously the firm conditions, the elements add to this, but you know, it's really more about who's got the the biggest, most uh, varied skill set. I feel like when we get in these opens at these golf courses, and not as much about hey, you just need you need to have power in order to have a chance this week. And we see this with you know Tom Watson competing. You know, almost winning at age sixty. We, you know, uh, Molinari, Francisco Molinari, winning, but also in the in the hunt that year, it was Kevin Kisner, a guy that talks about. You know, I only play in those tournaments because they have a lot of money. I have no chance of winning at some of these places. So I think that's um, something I think about a lot every time the Open comes around. Is how much different would the world rankings look if there was a eight week eight week links swing? through this yeah. this time of year like would we see a, a significantly different top 25 in the world i think in the old links with old equipment yeah i say the old links they're all old but i mean mm -hmm. uh, with old equipment on the, the 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 bone dry setups that we used to see a lot more of not saying they're watering them 
uh, just uh, whatever, for whatever reason, we don't see them that often. I think there would be quite a change. Uh, I, you know, I agree with you in terms of the well-roundedness, uh, who's got the best skill set. That always helps on, uh, on major setups and maybe more at, at the open than anywhere else. I'm not sure. Um, I do think uh, power uh, is seductive even at the open now because especially when um, it, there's, there's a lot of space, even though there might be a lot of high grass, players feel like they can take on high grass a little more readily than they used to be able to, uh, I think with Bryson as the example. Um, so I also think because we talked earlier about, you know, maybe there's not a link style anymore. Um, it kind of comes down to who's playing well, yeah. as simplistic as that sounds. And, and all these guys have a lot of skills. And I mean, we saw Luke Glover last week, you know, he, he put it together um, from, I would say not, out, not out of nowhere. He's been, he's been building towards this, but you wouldn't necessarily have thought of him as a winner, obviously going into the week. So I just think there's more surprises now in pro golf because there is more of a uniform game and they're all capable when they're hot of, of having great ball striking weeks and great putting weeks. And every week, maybe, and maybe, you know, a great statistician could put this together. I'm going to guess maybe 10 guys are 10, 10% of the field is playing as a game. And even though they may not be in the top hundred in the world, that's a dangerous player. Uh, and I, I think that's why everything feels more open now. St. George's in particular may feel open because to your point, I think it is great architecture. It doesn't seem like it favors anybody, you know, um, there's not a pattern to the holes necessarily. There's not, uh, uh, you know, just this kind of uh, shape that, that, or, you know, high ball, low ball, whatever. Uh, it just seems like um, it's, it's a fair test. Yeah. There's a little bit of capriciousness with the, with the bounces. Uh, and that's part of the game too, is dealing with, you know, um, rub of the green. So I think temperament's big uh, in, in who wins these things at the open. Uh, and that tends to be toward a mature player. But uh, so I look at, I look at Shoffley right now as a kind of do and he's young, but he's mature and he has that skill set you were talking about. And he's had, you know, he finished second at Carnoustie. He's a guy, I just feel like, uh, I don't know, St. George's could be a good place for him because he can handle what it offers. The attitude is so good too. I think just like, you know, in the recent years of watching him in, in interviews is just how he handles things. Like remember the, the baby crying, was that a, yeah. was that a Carnoustie yeah. where, you know, like so many players would have had such a negative outward reaction. His, he kind of laughed it off and, and just like you, you don't hear him making excuses. Like you hear a lot of golfers who are, you know, naturally always, it's never them. Um, kind of mentality, and I think that's that's something that suits him so well in these major championships. Is that like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get hung up on maybe this was I got a bad bounce and this is why this happened. It, it, it's here, and then he moves on to the next shot. He's very intelligent, and he's also, you know, he's got a great, I think, like you said, philosophy of of letting go of things you can't control. Uh, I think right now his mind is on what does it take mentally for me to see these things through at the end. Cause that is a challenge um, that has gotten into his head a little bit. He's, he's given a couple away and he's trying to deal with that and, and talk about it, which is, you know, rare. I think that's that one area of, can you close? That's a tough thing for players to talk about. That's when they always say, you know, I just want to get there with a chance on Sunday because even the best of them know that 
there's just no way you can con consistently, you know, get it done. Uh, there's, there's too many variables. There's, there's nerves. Some days you feel relaxed. Some days you feel confident. Some days you don't. I think Tiger skewed that perception because he was just so incredible on Sundays. To this, to this day, I think that's his greatest record, just his percentage of closing out 54-hole leads. Uh, that made him special. Mm -hmm. What else you got? Oh, man. Uh, you know, Rory's always so intriguing. And He's on mine, too, so this is a good uh, one. Well, then with him, I guess. But, you know, I, I give me your ideas, too. I did, but I, I think um, I wonder, is his, is his new ceiling, you know, this – the thirty-year-old, thirty-year-old decade ahead, is that ceiling lower than his old ceiling? Because so, I think there's a presumption that you know, hey, you know, you, you get better as you get more experienced, and thirty uh, is still the prime time. And I just wonder, as a prodigy and as somebody who won four majors so early and who is under so much scrutiny, and who doesn't seem to have the same dynamic qualities in his game as he used to have. I'm not saying he's short or anything like that, but it just uh, you know, he would he would get on a on a run of not run, but just a full flight kind of moment where, you know, he's one of these majors by eight strokes. Um, some of that was, you know, hot putting. But in general, he just was hitting shots other guys didn't hit. So it, is his um, is his good as good as it used to be? And will it will it keep getting good or is have we seen the best of Rory, I guess? Yeah, this ties right into what I, what I had written down. I we did a deep dive on on a lot of those the famous five uh, or six whatever it is from the Europe, and I remember stumbling across a quote from uh, Manuel uh, Biaseros, who said Seve played his best golf at age sixteen on the mm -hmm. beach. Yeah, and I I never will forget that because it's so true, and you see it with junior golf. Like you know, you see kids that are gang but go gangbusters in junior golf, and then they get to college golf and they're good, but they aren't great. Or the great college golfer that doesn't make it as a pro, and sometimes guys just play their best golf at different ages, right? You know, and that's yeah. just when they're at their best. And we might look back on Rory and say, you know, he was the best player he ever was when he was twenty four. You know, as in, and it's not nothing wrong with that, but like. You know, we're if he doesn't win this week or eight years without a major, and you know, I the U.S. Open was really the first close call in a while. Like there, there are a lot of high finishes, but they're kind of not. They're high finishes without like substantive uh, contention, and I think that's that's the thing. You know, I he's such a great player, and he's you know he, he's he's so likable because I feel like he's so relatable for everybody you know talking about the chicken sandwiches it's just like you know yeah, he just got funny, like yeah. like he, I feel like almost everybody feels like you know what I would be friends with Rory you know like that I think yeah. that he's got that kind of quality and it's hard to like but you know he might not his best golf might be years behind him right well you make you know when you mentioned I had not heard that quote from Manuel uh Ballesteros and uh uh, a very similar one that I've thrown around in the past was from Crenshaw who said, I, I played my best. I was my, I was the best I ever was when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I didn't think I just did, you know? And uh, as soon as he started, and in those days there was a lot of fiddling and when he got, and Ben very much like Rory, very engaging. Uh, people loved him. The other players loved him. A lot of guys offered him advice. He tried a lot of different things. He got away from some of the Harvey Phoenix stuff uh, again, not, not carelessly, but just because, you know, he has an active mind and he loves the game and he was trying and he got, uh, he got confused, but you know, uh, he came out of it, but he was really a, 
an amazing young player. And then when he got uh, thyroid uh, issues and lost some weight, he lost some of his power. So that was, that was a factor there. That's one reason also that uh, that 95 matches was a miracle because, you know, mm -hmm. he was not the same kind of player anymore, but you, you know, golf is mysterious as, <laughs> and, and, you know, there's nothing that says you, you, you hit some kind of level and then you keep it for a while. I mean, that could be very fleeting. Um, and Seve's Seve's prime in a way was short. Um, I mean, it was profound and it seemed like he was out there forever, but um, it was just cause he was so compelling and, and, you know, Rory's God, he just won this year. So, I mean, I, I always feel unfair, like I'm being unfair to Rory writing these, you know, or talking these kind of golf obituaries. Cause I don't believe that, that he's, I just, but I do wonder if he's, if his arc, whereas Tigers continued to go upward has flattened or has started to descend. And again, this is a human individual thing. We don't know all the reasons you think that with all the knowledge out there, you could extend your prime now, either with technique or with training or with attitude, uh, uh, psychological breakthroughs, who knows, or maybe it's just, Hey, this is who you are and this is how it goes. And, um, I know he's trying, I know he's a father and maybe he doesn't have quite the same, you know, total immersion and commitment, um, to the game as he did, but gosh, um, I, I would doubt there's anything he loves more than to play well. Uh, so I, I think you make some great points about, you know, these patterns that, uh, maybe are unavoidable that, uh, you, you sort of feel like with the greatest guys, they kind of will it to happen somehow, mm -hmm. you know, Jack kind of somehow willed 1980 to happen after looking like he was done in 79 and how many things the tiger will, you know, and, and, but you don't think of Rory as having that kind of just, you know, uh, monomaniacal will. Uh, to the same extent and maybe that's the difference maybe you got to when you've been playing a long time and you've had a lot of success you've got to just have an like a Michael Jordan you know uh, you got to have a fire that just never goes out and that's abnormal I think so, the Harrington yeah. quote um, is one of my favorite quotes like that happened to the, about the experience experience isn't it all yeah yeah, up to be? yeah 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 like it, it and you know you just lose innocence i think it yeah. was experience when you gain experience you lose innocence i think that's mm -hmm. like prime rory right he almost had this like he took on shots and he was you know my buddy one time called him a swashbuckling talent like he was uh -huh. just like he had no fear and for some players like they as they age they get they learn how to play more and they 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 don't make as many stupid mistakes their game cleans up and for him he might have just lost that youthful just like you know style i always think with tiger tiger could have been a swashbuckler but he always played percentage golf he always played careful golf and he was always fearful of of the mistake mm -hmm. and he played around all that and that's how he you know was so consistent and he never he never very rarely just went all out and just you know uh just said i'm, I'm gonna shoot at the pin every he was always shaping shots he was always playing percentages that was his personality but i also think he was comfortable being fearful uh, you know, in other words, I'm not saying he was scared to play, but I, he feared the mistake. Rory wants to play this, as he says, fearless golf. I don't even know if that exists, you know, in, unless you're 18, you know, unless you're, I mean, the more you play golf, the more you realize, you know, as you, even the guys who are the greatest in the world, they, the more things they know can go wrong. 
uh, if you're not careful. And Rory just doesn't seem to have that mentality of, I don't want to play careful. You know, to him, I I, I think when he plays careful, he feels inhibited Mm -hmm. and like he's, he's not himself. Uh, He needs, he needs that feeling of freedom, which I, I just don't think is that common for tour players who know that, you know, one bad hole or, or a couple of stupid bogeys can cost you a tournament because that's generally what happens to Rory is he makes inevitably some kind of silly, I say silly, but they seem like, you know, uh, soft mistakes and soft bogeys and like the three uh, putt on 12 or at, uh, or 11 at, at Tory. Like, just, that, well, that might've been nerves. Cause you know, suddenly he was thrust into it. And I, I remember he really jerked that six footer. Of course, the first putt was only 25 feet. So he yeah. left that. So, I mean, there was something going on there that maybe he just, you know, suddenly was uncomfortable that with the situation because he hadn't been there in a while, but uh, you know, going all day about this, but I, I do feel that Rory is looking for an ideal state of mind that, is very hard to capture for a person, you know, who's not a teenager anymore. Yeah. I, uh, I think so parlaying off that I got, I got Brooks as one of mine. So he went, he went four for nine in majors. And if he doesn't win this one, he's zero for nine, which we saw one of the best runs. And now like, he's always in the mix and you know, you just start to wonder like this thing, like when you are invincible, like, Tiger was invincible. He never lost. He was always, whenever he was in it, he'd win, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, Y.E. Yang beats him, and he doesn't win very much anymore. And I think, like, with Brooks, you start to wonder when, like, these close calls start to turn into scar tissue. And, you know, is he working through stuff? Because, like, that that Masters, the Tiger won... Brooks really had some good looks to win that. And he had one, he had one in the water on twelve. Yeah, you know, he missed misbakeable putts on seventeen and eighteen, and and that could he could have been a real instead of a storybook finish like a you know a sad Tom Austin like finish where Tiger didn't win because you know Brooks Brooks yeah, beat him. away from him. yeah you know these close calls like are you worried at all with Brooks yeah yeah you know I I think Brooks first of all physically you know you you worry uh, that he's got a bit of a kinetic chain going with these injuries you know whether it's a, a knee or the hip. Um, you know, that for the, especially his style of play, which is a very, you know, very muscular, um, forceful golf swing. Uh, it's not, it's not one that's built on, you know, timing and, and kind of this fluid kind of swish through the ball. I mean, he's really bringing the big muscles into play. Um, you know, he's got to be fit, I think, to perform at his best more so than, um, maybe somebody who doesn't use their body quite as, uh, quite as forcefully, but, I also, you know, I think about, yeah, that was an incredible run. What he won, you said four out of nine or four out of eight majors. I mean, well, he didn't play in one, it was nine majors, but eight attempts, eight attempts Four. I mean, that's, you know, that's tiger like almost from 2000. Um, So that, that gave him an aura and he was on an amazing run. I think his confidence was, you know, unrealistic. He might've felt like this is, this is, this is always going to happen, you know, because I am this guy. And I think golf just kind of imposed itself on the difficulty of it and, and the inability to just stay in that kind of zone for a long, long time. Uh, obviously, the zone we talk about sometimes only lasts two or three holes. Uh, his zone was lasting, you know, eight tournaments. Um, and so once it goes, then you start realizing, oh, this, this is not a given, that I'm always going to feel this uh, in command. 
because you know uh, at Kiowa at the Masters, uh, Kiowa in particular, there were some nervous misses there. You know, short putts. Now I know he hasn't been you know in it as much, and he won at Phoenix. And I'm not saying Brooks can't handle pressure. I'm just saying he's fallible, and and that realization I'm sure has occurred to him that uh, hey, this doesn't quite feel the same as it used to. And it's not, it's not as easy. So that's why I'm not worried about him. I just don't, I don't look at him with all time, great kind of talent or all time, great kind of love for the game either. Yeah. I mean, he talks about, he talks about the game. Like it just, ah, you know, I don't like it this much at tour events, whatever. He's, he took a nap at the, at the O3 yeah. open. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think he's really built for longevity. I don't think it's a, an accident that he was mentioned pretty prominently as a premier golf league guy or super, super golf league guy. Uh, so I think that argues against his being, you know, this, um, you know, stalwart for the next 10 years. I think he's had his, his prime moment and maybe he recaptures it. Maybe he doesn't, but it'll go down as kind of like a Ralph Gouldall kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, this no, supernova flew across the sky and, and, uh, and that was the best we saw of him. The guy, the guy that started the, uh, open doctor era, Ralph Gouldall. Started all the modernization of the great classic courses. So that's so tell me how that happened. Oakland Hills. That's where he broke the broke the scoring record of the US Open. And okay, then, so that's that was the motivation for so, the Oakland Hills members saying we're not having this anymore so, and they brought Robert Trent Jones. Robert Trent Jones and yeah. and USGA I mean, was and then fifty one and basically on from there all the courses got redone. Okay. That's so, a great one. I, yeah. I know I would learn a lot from you today and I have. Thank you. Uh, what, what, uh, what else you got on the list? I'm out. Cause I, you know, I'm out too, really. I okay. mean, we talk, we talk about Rom. I, I just very quickly on Rom. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Rom's got so many great tools, but I, I, I want to see if his attitude's for real, you know, and I'm not, you know, I know it's a little simplistic and it really annoys him <laughs> to keep hearing, Oh, you're a hothead. And he probably buried a lot of that criticism at Tory. I will say I used to be in his corner big time. And I've always been, I mean, I heard today, and I'm just going to be like, a, not even a humble brag, but that uh, I, I know Justin Leonard was talking about Furyk saying, you know, in 10 years of all these young players, Rom will have the most majors. And I was asked, you know, a year ago, uh, who's the best. Of the, and I, I said, I think in 10 years, I'd like to have, I would take John Rom's record over everybody else's. Now that may pan out or may not, but there's real quality there is what I'm saying. When you, when Justin Leonard, who's, you know, who knows good golf and good players says that, or excuse me, when Jim Furyk says that, you know, you feel like you're in good company. I think when I, when I talked about the opposite player of Rory, like where, you know, the, the more you play, the better you get, the more experience you get, the better you get. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot like embodies John Rahm. Like he's so overwhelmingly talented and it's just all the in the moment experience is just in, in being there more and more and, and not having those over, like the more you're there, the less you react. Right. Hopefully, hopefully. And yeah. I think that's the mm-hmm. guy that like embodies that kind of like, he's just going to keep getting better. Um, I remember when he came out after he had that great start, I I put up a poll on Twitter. Would you, ra- would you take career earnings from this point forward of, of John Rahm or Jordan Spieth? And mm-hmm. everybody's like, you're crazy. Spieth like, and I, I and you went wrong. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Rom is is just, I've you know, he's just so talented. Like every aspect of the game, he's so great at. Like that's the thing. There's no, and you saw it right from the start, right when he got on tour. There's no discernible weaknesses in his game, and that that 
leads to great consistency. Just like, you know, Tiger, and I don't want to put him in the Tiger bucket. I, I'd rather compare. I think he's more like Ernie Els. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, where he's good at everything. And Ernie, obviously, is putting faded later in his career. Was, but he was good at everything, yeah. Yeah, he was just mm-hmm. – and, and because of that, he was just a top 10, top 5 machine. And I think that's what we're going to see from John Rahm is just, you know, r- remarkable consistency in that same bucket. Morikawa is in that same bucket with the, with the, just how good he is at striking the golf ball. But Rahm has that putter. And when we saw it at Torrey, like when he made those putts down the stretch that were unthinkable to make those back-to-back. Well, if you're going to make history, you've got to win majors. And to make majors, to win majors, you've got to putt uh, on Sundays. Back-to-back and, majors is a big deal. Th- yeah, there, well, I think what, I think there was eight guys I was looking at. Uh, back-to-back uh, U.S. Open, um, Open Championship. By the way, I'm a British Open guy. I know you can't say that, but uh, but uh, I was going to say about Rom too that you know, to me, he can win majors if he keeps his if he keeps his head. And you make a good point that he's learned. He was stubborn about it before. He would say, you know, I, I play better this way. I burn hot, and it makes me, uh, you know, more determined, etc. It's not true. Uh, I mean, it may be true that yeah, you can burn hot, but if you show it and 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 you lose your 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 calm. Um, it, it, I, I don't know. The history of golf does not show those guys being winners. So, uh, especially at a major with the pressure's highest, the self-control factor is the one I'm looking at. And I think, you know, you, you make a great uh, point that he ain't, he ain't dumb. He, he saw how it worked at Torrey, so keep it going. I just Well, he had that moment at Torrey. Do you remember in Saturday's round when he hit the flag on 14? I can't remember now. I'm, I, I may have missed it because I might have been out walking around too much but tell me what happened he was he had a he got in trouble and he had to chip out and then his third shot hit the flag it would have been tight it would have been feet away you know kicking probably hits the flag ends up 25 feet away he makes double i think he made double oh wow huh. um or maybe he made bogey you know he just I, do, made I, bogey. I remember reading about it now yes and yeah. he and it looked like it just looked like the quintessential like you've seen the you've seen the moment happen with him so many times That's where right. everything just blows up and it didn't and that was yeah. like to me like the turning point of that tournament was like he didn't give in there and he you know he finished well that round out that kept him in it really and uh and, and that was like but I don't know. It's it's so hard. Golf. If this is this might not be the place for him because this is the place that's got those things that happen that you can't explain. You know. Well, just all he's got to do is you know stay Nicholas like stay you know uh, uh, in terms of and that's hard to do. But you know if you're going to be great, make make the mental approach. Be as good at the mental approach as you are at everything physical. And mm-hmm. uh, I think he can do it. You know, there was a moment at Torrey two in the first round. He missed like a two and a half footer on on twelve, and he and he just walked, picked up the ball, and he walked away from it. And you know, I sound like a parent who's scolding his hot headed little you know, thirteen year old prodigy kid, uh, because every good player at that age has a temper. But John's too old to have that temper anymore. That's my that's my little get off my lawn, old man assessment. <laughs> so. We, you're going to be on live from all week on the Golf Channel. People can find you there, right? Anything else you got cooking this week? No, it's a, it's a, it's a week of uh, complete uh, dedicated uh, TV scheduling, which it, it's fun. It, it is, it, it's, there's a lot. You'd be great in this environment. You know, there's a lot of golf that gets talked. You learn a lot of golf from especially the ex-players, um, you know, Aaron Oberholzer or, or, or Justin. 
we're in Stanford this week, unfortunately, because because yeah. you know, of COVID. But it, 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 you know, that's what I've enjoyed the most about being a Golf Channel is uh, is just how kind of endless the the golf discussions can be on uh, off air. Hopefully, some of that, some of the best ones, sometimes you feel like are off air, but uh, a lot of it, uh, an amazing amount of it, gets carried over on mm-hmm. on air too, especially with uh, with Brandel and Rich and 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 Justin. You guys are going to be dealing with the uh, the awful hours, you know, the the early mornings. Yeah, it, you know, it's once it, it's like a casino. You know, you don't know what you come in here and you don't know what, you you don't you don't see the sun. You walk out there, you don't know what time it was. So it doesn't once you get started, it almost doesn't matter. Um, yeah. uh, and 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 everybody's excited about the open. Um, yeah, I, there's just something visually, even though we're not there, something visually about seeing a great old links on the, you know. On the, on the place the game was uh, was was invented it, it it inspires people yeah it's it's my probably my favorite major i think i think i i think i wrote something a couple of years ago it was my favorite major but you haven't been over there yet no no yeah well, well that's it'll be even better for you when you go and then play over there too yeah i know that's, that, that does bring it alive that that was always the most fun part about going to the open in the older days before uh, was you know the days were so long and, you know, at Sports Illustrated, we wrote one story a week yeah. uh, for a while there. And, you know, there was a lot of a lot of time to play golf in the late afternoon at, at the surrounding courses. And That's, it wasn't. Yeah, it was really nice. That uh, Brandon Stone a couple of years ago, I'll, I'll never forget that when he was out playing. Uh, what was it? Was he playing the North Barrack? North Barrack is everybody's favorite. Yeah. With, the, with the Hickories or was he? It was it was at Carnoustie. Maybe he was playing the old course with he the Hickories. Panmuir, I bet he was playing Panmuir at Carnoustie. Uh-huh. Because they I, had the Hickory, they had the Hickory Championship there. Yeah, he and won think, the Hickories from uh, from the Scottish, I think. The oh, I see. Before. And uh-huh. then he, he was playing after his round. He so he'd finish his round in the open, and they somebody had saw him out playing at one of the other courses. Yeah. I can't remember where it was. That after he played his round, I think he was he was in the mix. He'd shot sixty nine or sixty eight that day. It was it just like. The the golf spirit is uh, is the yeah, thing I go. really need to experience out there. Well, good luck, man. I mean, uh, you're uh, you're well positioned because those guys all know you now. They'll be more than happy to host you. Last two years have been kind of tough for the for getting over there. So. Well, I know, but everybody's pent up now, so they'll <laughs> they'll they'll want you to see everything. It'll be great. Hi, mate. Thank you so much for coming on. Really looking forward to your coverage this week and. Uh, is somebody who's grown up reading your articles and uh, everything you've brought to the game. A big thanks to, for you growing my love of golf. Well, that's very nice of you. And, you know, thank you for what you're doing with these podcasts because there's a there's a deep dive into that old spirit that you talked about. And uh, it's not as easy to find anymore with the world moving so fast. And uh, it's a gift of the game what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Fried Egg Podcast. This episode was edited by Meg Atkins. As I mentioned at the top, it's a major championship. That means we have daily newsletters. Will Knights does an incredible job with these. He'll be up at all odd hours of the day watching this, as will I, as will Garrett. Um, But he will keep you covered if you miss any of that. If you have to work and you can't watch golf all the time, 
uh, he'll have you covered. So sign up for the Fried Egg newsletter. It's free. It comes out three days a week normally during major weeks. It's every day of the week. And uh, lots of great tidbits, stories, witty humor in there. So sign up at thefriedegg.com. It's right there. It's free. It's easy. And uh, you'll know more about golf. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Fried Egg.